Hello everyone and welcome to Talk with the Doc, the show where we bring your common questions to medical experts for insight and information. I'm your host, Mary Anoff, and joining me today are two pediatric pulmonologists from Providence's Sacred Heart Medical Center in Spokane, Washington. We have Dr. Almond Chavez and Dr. Stanley Lee, and today we're discussing pediatric respiratory illnesses. What conditions fall under that classification, how they may affect you and members of your family, and tips and treatments for them. So let's get started by welcoming Dr. Chavez and Dr. Lee. Well, I like to start off with an easy softball for each of you. So if you can just tell us a little bit about yourself and your work at Providence and what brought you to this specialty, that would be amazing. So let's start with you, Dr. Chavez. Oh, sure. Well, first of all, I want to say thank you for having me on the show. It's uh, my very first podcast, so I'm very excited. Um, I've been with Providence for eight going on eight years. I came in 2015. Uh, prior to that, I worked in Texas. I trained in in Arkansas and New Mexico. So most of my career was in the South and we were up for an adventure and uh, found Spokane to be a wonderful uh, place to raise a family. So we decided to, to make the big move eight years ago. And I've really enjoyed my time here at Providence. I have a great team of, of uh, colleagues that I work with, um, including a whole uh, team of, of staff that uh, supports our work, like a social worker, a dietitian, a pharmacist. Um, so yeah, I, I really enjoy uh, uh, the work that we're doing right now. Well, it definitely takes a village, absolutely. How about you, Dr. Lee? Tell us a little bit about you. Yes, yeah, so I just started Providence just over a year ago. I came straight from fellowship and this is my first official job as an attending. Um, I initially went to New York for residency in my pediatric pulmonology in Louisville and um, went over to Spokane because my family, I have some family in Canada and I'm Canadian, so it's kind of close to the border and it's been pretty nice, you know. Finished my rookie season, so it's now year two and kind of getting to learn everything and everyone and everyone's been great so far. Well, we're very blessed to have both of you. I appreciate you taking the time today. Well, today we're talking about pediatric respiratory illnesses and neuromuscular lung diseases like asthma. Um, and so I wanted to just ask how common are these conditions in children and, and what should parents be aware of when it comes to diagnosing and treating these illnesses, Dr. Lee? So I think it's now around the first week of October and we're right a smack dab into respiratory viral season. It's fairly common. I think it's one of the most common pediatric diseases. Everyone's sick, everyone gets a virus, everyone gets a common cold. It's normal. Children are expected to have four to six respiratory viral illnesses every year. Um, and most of them should be able to be managed by supportive care and time. But it's fairly common. We see it a lot and we're busy. And what should parents look for with, with each of these? You said four to six. I suppose that they present slightly differently. But when should we think that it's something we can treat at home versus when should we go in to see a physician? So I guess most common things being common, respiratory viruses come a dime a dozen. There's a bunch of different viruses, including rhinovirus, the common cold, RSV, influenza, um, and a gamut of all the viruses that we see every day. But what usually presents with... And these children are, is, you know, the common fever, temperature 101 or, or greater, um, you know, that nasal congestion, some cough. I um, mean, a general viral illness, there is generalized inflammation. So the kid feels sick, um, you know, decreased oral intake, decreased wet diapers, 
um, which would be a common viral issue for these kids. How do we know if it's the common cold versus asthma? So I think common cold versus asthma would be very important and it's an open, it's a very broad topic, but I think asthma presents on top of a common cold when the symptoms generally linger. But my general rule of thumb is a viral infection should go away when all your, your, all your peers get better. So in children that go to daycare, and the daycare has a virus, usually one or two days they get sick and then they get better. But children with a suspicion for asthma, they tend to have a cough that lingers for weeks, two to three weeks, and and it wouldn't get better. And all the kids are back and running and they still have um, symptoms of shortness of breath and cough throughout the day and night. Well, that doesn't sound like any fun. I will give you that. Is there a genetic element for respiratory illnesses? I know we often see families where several members have asthma, for example. Is that because it gets passed down? Is it environmental? Is this a nature versus nurture thing? I think, of course, there it's, it's a bit of both, but asthma is primarily a genetic disease. You're absolutely right. I often ask when a new patient comes in and we get referrals from pediatricians in the community, the first question I ask is, ask the parents, do you have asthma or did you have asthma? Because asthma is hereditary and it's an allergic disease. So given given in previous um, talks before, I always talk about the unholy trinity in which it's asthma, eczema, and allergies. And when you tease out a family history of that and like, oh, my brother has eczema. Oh, grandma has asthma. Oh, mother has exercise-induced asthma. And then everyone has seasonal allergies. And the kid's been coughing for three weeks following a viral illness. It increases the odds of the child having asthma. And, you know, Although it is genetic, there is an environmental component to it too. So the triggers of asthma would be in around Spokane, there'd be smoke, right? Smoke would be a trigger. Allergens would be a trigger. And of course, environmental viruses would be a trigger for for asthma. So there's a multitude of different triggers that is from the environment. But if the child does not have a predisposition genetically, then they don't likely, they are not likely to develop these asthma-like symptoms. Well, Dr. Chavez, are there certain conditions like this that are worse in different seasons? Like, should parents be more aware in fall and winter? Because you mentioned, Dr. Lee, like it's cold season. But are there types of allergy seasons versus cold seasons? What should parents be looking for based on time of year? Uh, Sure. You know, there's a peak in allergy symptoms in the spring and fall, as probably more than half our listeners will attest to that because allergies are so common. And because asthma and allergies are so interrelated, if allergies are flaring, it can lead to asthma exacerbations. So by controlling allergies during those seasons, you're in a sense also controlling the asthma symptoms. What I generally describe to families that I'm meeting for for their children who have asthma is that in order for a child to develop symptoms, usually there is an additive effect. Uh, If you picture a cup that you're filling up with water, say the allergies are part of the water and uh, bad weather is another part. And then the child, um, you know, was sleep deprived or something that, you know, just lowered their immunity and all of these things add up and then they get a cold. It's much more likely to end up with symptoms of asthma because all all of these things that added up. So uh, definitely spring and fall. 
but there are some children who are allergic to winter molds and so then we we have to keep an eye on that and some kids are allergic to pretty much anything green so all summer long they're having the sniffles and so it's uh, dependent on on the person yeah my little cousin is is allergic to grass I'm like well that's just great where are you going to live i guess in the desert <laughs> you know i you mentioned kids, right? And maybe sleep deprived. I think we as adults know how to care for our common cold and we know kind of what to look for. How do we treat the common cold differently in children than we do as adults? I guess in pediatrics, you know, most viruses go away with time. I think supportive care would be very important to emphasize here by supportive care. I think number one, if they have a fever would be antipyretics, so the ibuprofens and the Tylenols. Um, I think we in, in viral illnesses, what we usually run into is these kids tend not to like to eat or drink. So hydration is important. Um, you know, children that have bronchiolitis and just respiratory viral illnesses, the number one reason to get admitted to the hospital is because they're dehydrated. Their wet diapers have significantly decreased and they need IV fluids with, with these viral illnesses. So treatment for common colds in a viral illness is really supportive care and time. I try to stay away from cough medicine. I know adults are really rampant on the Robitussin and the Zarbies and it's advertised in the stores. And I try to stay away from that um, because what are we doing? We're putting a Band-Aid on the symptoms, but we're really not really helping the kid expectorate or get rid of the mucus and let the natural immune system take care of it. And second of all, as I try to stay away from antibiotics, um, my rule of thumb if it, of, of an, an antibiotic targets a bacteria. The antibiotic will not do anything from a virus, right? And it, it, we are always historically have been under the perception that antibiotics cures everything. But in actuality, you know, if you give a kid antibiotic for a virus and you go away in five days, is it really the antibiotic that took care of it? Or is it time and the virus just run its natural course, right? So in my opinion, and I think our practice agrees, is we minimize the use of antibiotics because we don't. We, we want to be cognizant of how much antibiotic resistance and overuse we introduce to our little kiddos. So, if we're not using, you know, the expectorants, the over-the-counter expectorants, and that sort of thing, what tips would you give parents for how to kind of get their kids through those, you know, few days of that cold? The mom. The mom should answer this one. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I am a mom indeed. So, um, you know, the supportive care that Dr. Lee was mentioning before in, in keeping a child well hydrated goes a long ways in, in the mucus not being so thick. There are a couple of things that I was going to add also to what Dr. Lee was saying. Whenever somebody has a fever, uh, they're much more prone to getting dehydrated just because they're they're evaporating more of their of their fluid and so what i recommend is having a, you know a, a tall glass of water with diluted apple juice is my go to when my kids are sick and just having them sip and sip and sip through while they're while they're sick a rule of thumb is announce an hour usually uh, helps most school aged kids and then in young babies cleaning their nose goes a long way because they breathe through their nose more than their mouth. 
if anybody has you know paid attention to their baby uh, breathing you'll you'll notice that and so if they have one small mucus plug a little booger uh, stuck in there it's really hard for them to to breathe normally through their nose and so what I recommend is going into either a steamy bathroom you don't have to put the child in the shower or in the tub but you know when the when the bathroom gets nice and, and steamy or give the baby a bath and then using one of the over-the-counter bulbs syringes to pull out the the nasty Ooh, the snot the suckers yeah mm -hmm. you gotta have a snot sucker <laughs> oh for sure <laughs> that's amazing that's really good advice one of the questions we got when we talked about doing this episode was that a lot of kids get croup or bronchitis and it seems like they're getting it year after year after year is that true is it something that you see year after year and if so are there things that parents can be doing at home to prevent that so croup is a different entity in itself croup is usually caused by a virus most commonly para influenza and um, the problem with croup is it's an upper airway issue, right? Instead of asthma being a lower airway um, in which you have that cough with mucus, the croup usually presents in which the swelling of the upper airway happens following a virus and you get that like that striderous cough that you can hear from a mile away. Um, and you get at that seal barky sounding cough. And the concern for, 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 for croup is that the airway might end up closing. So if it's strider at rest, it would necessitate an emergency visit with re these kids would come in with recurrent croup and would tolerate, we would need steroids in the emergency room and go back and forth and back and forth. And unfortunately there's no real medication that we need that, that we can do at baseline to alleviate croup children with chronic a recurrent croup is be, because their upper airway is so small and then there's inflammation from the virus that causes it to kind of close in and have that that inspiratory strider cough that's um, more prevalent. However, over time, these children, as they grow taller, so the lungs and the airway grows with height, not with any other parameter. So lungs grow with height, and as the child grows, as they hit puberty and as they get older, their airway gets bigger. And as you can tell, obviously, if you have bigger airway, the less chances of it would hurt to close with croup. So that's one of the differentials that we often see. And we I have certainly seen, and I'm sure Dr. Chavez as well, with, with children with recurrent croup that come to our clinic. You know, what we try to do is make sure that the parents are aware of these symptoms when they start and get go to the PCP or the emergency room or let us know um, to avoid an emergency airway situation. Um, don't, Dr. Travis, do you have anything to add to that? No, I was just going to mention very good croup. I don't know how to do what you just did with your throat, so thank you for, for showing everybody that. But um, there are lots of different viruses that can result in croup. So there are some children who just have that tendency. Anytime they get sick, it turns into croup. And there's some kids that go through their life and never get croup. And again, it has to do with the anatomy and, and uh, with, with having that tendency in the family. But what happens if 
if a child is in very severe distress, what I generally have parents look at is the child's posture. Can they lay back? If they can't lay back, if they're sitting up, and a lot of times they actually extend their neck forward like they're, they're uh, reaching out with their nose uh, forward. If, if they're having that much trouble, it's time to go in. But if a child has croup, they're still able to, to uh, speak in complete sentences, they can lay down, they're still playful, then it's okay to watch them at home. Cold things help. And so opening up the freezer door and putting your child like really, really close to the freezer and just having them breathe some of that cold air or in the winters up here in Spokane, we can actually just walk outside. And I hear this story often, oh yeah, he had croup. So, uh, it, you know, very scary in the middle of the night, it was three in the morning, we got in the car and I rolled down the windows. And by the time we made it to the ER, he was fine. You know, that cold air really does tend to help. So those, those are a couple of tips for croup. Well, you, you both mentioned that there's multiple viruses and that, the, you know, it's virus season. Talk to me just about as adults, right? We know we can wear a mask, we can wash our hands, we can whatever. What advice do you give parents, especially Dr. Chavez, since you're a mom? And I don't know if you're going into daycare or not, but it seems like that's where most of these are coming from is that daycare school situation. How do we as families and, and parents prevent some of this? Um, I think the answer to that is we can't. I think it would be unreasonable to trap our kids in a glass house and avoid any of these viruses because you know our goals as pediatric pulmonologists is to let the children live free and do the activities that they want um, unfortunately parents have to work they have to go to daycare and you know what happens in daycare it's lots of respiratory viral illnesses right so you know like we said we we expect up to six times that they can get viral illnesses and it's okay um when it's not okay is when the children have underlying respiratory conditions such as asthma you know cystic fibrosis neuromuscular disease and all that stuff that that in a virus would trigger these illnesses and go out of control you know, we can try our best to prevent it, but honestly, like, it's, it's almost not even feasible to, to really avoid viral viral issues altogether. Um, and, and that's what I kind of want to let the parents know. It, you know, we got to live with what we usually do every day and how we can make ends meet and how our lifestyle is. And unfortunately, our kids are going to get sick. But if they are sick and they have asthma, then we have treatments that that we have to prevent these kids from going into respiratory failure and needing an admission or an emergency room visit for poorly controlled or uncontrolled or unidentified asthma. I, I like what you're saying there, because I think if we learned nothing during the pandemic, it was that keeping kids home and away from their friends and activities was damaging to their mental health, right? Like I'd much rather my kid have a cold than be depressed, I think. So I appreciate you saying that. I do want to dig in a little bit with you, Dr. Lee, on asthma specifically, just because people, I think, ask us a lot, you know, what is asthma and what is happening to my kid's body when they're going through an asthma attack? Yeah, so, so asthma is a like we talked about earlier, it's an atopic, an allergic disease most of the time. Um, you can't say if it's all, but it's mostly allergic disease. And what happens is our airways or small airways are hypersensitive and hyper responsive to various triggers. Um, and then what happens is the airway shrivels up, like, 
it like closes in and the natural defense of our lungs is to secrete mucus. So not only does the airway shrivel up, it also secretes mucus and that produces that <laughs> the productive cough that parents talk about, that, but the cough never comes out. It just stays in their lungs and it's a self-perpetuating um, illness that they, they can never get rid of no matter how they, much they try without any asthma-directed therapies, right? So basically asthma is genetic, it's allergic, it's hypersensitive, hyper-responsive airways that shrivel up and then mucus would be secreted. And then I guess what would trigger these hyper-responsive airways? So I was just talking about family earlier. I'm like, all right, parents, family feud, five main triggers of asthma, top five answers on the board, go. So I get the parents who have histories of asthma and we like kind of go and see what their triggers are. But number one answer on the board, a virus, an infection. 50 points on the board, family feud style. And then following number two would be allergies and then change in temperature, exercise and smoke. So those are the five general triggers with viruses and allergies being one and two. You know, we live in Spokane in the Pacific Northwest. Fires, wildfires are prominent here during, you know, wildfire dry season. So smoke becomes a salient trigger for our kids. So we recommend that if the air quality index is greater than 100 for um, sensitive lungs for children that are diagnosed with asthma or any respiratory illness, they stay home. And then 150 for everybody, they stay home. And the official recommendation, if we have to leave and the air quality is bad, that we wear N95 masks or any surgical mask or any mask just to try to avoid smoke inhalation and trigger respiratory compromise. But that's kind of like my general rule of thumb when I start meeting patients for the first time is to educate. What are the common triggers? I'm kind of glad my family hasn't come into your office because we're very competitive and I could see us taking each other out trying to get the number one answer on the board. Uh, let's, it's family let's... It's it's family feud, so you all work together to get the most oh, points, right? Oh, you haven't met my family. <laughs> <laughs> um, talk to me a little bit about, okay, so you've diagnosed asthma. What are the treatments? Because I've heard things from nebulizers and inhalers. And, and just talk to me a little bit about what you would do if you just recently diagnosed a kid with asthma. So usually with mild asthma, so we call it intermittent asthma, which is episodic and it's not persistent, um, then we use albuterol. What the age-old question is, do you do nebulizers versus spacers, inhalers versus spacers? And everyone in our practice is different, but my general rule of thumb is six months to a year old, you go to inhaler spacer. Inhalers versus nebulizers are equal in efficacy and you know, we have a lot of controllers, a lot of albuterol um, medications that are all based on spacers. Um, and so I try to just emphasize mostly spacer use for almost all my kids, just because when you, for, for instance, you're, you're backpacking in Glacier National Park and your kid suddenly has an asthma attack, right? And we're scrambling to find the nebulizer, but it's in the hotel or somewhere and I can't find a plug. But if you have a medicine bag with the albuterol inhaler with a spacer, then you can just give the treatment right then and there. And, and some kids, you know, tend to favor the inhaler with a spacer because it's not like a machine with electricity, but you know, some parents do prefer the nebulizer. Some, you know, this is very anecdotal and very subjective that one works better than the other, but the evidence is fairly equal. And 
you know, another thing is, but my child can take an albuterol without a spacer because they can do that breath hold. And so my response to that is, mom, you know, my general rule of thumb is it's albuterol inhaler with a spacer until you can trust them with your credit card. Nice. I like, like that. Never. <laughs> <laughs> well, think about it, right? A six-year-old. Tell a six-year-old <gasps> to take a good long breath and hold it for 10 seconds. Are they, because half of the battle is prescribing the correct medication. Second half of the battle is to get the medications delivered to the smallest airways in the recesses of their lungs, right? No matter how excellent a child is at you know, their hand-eye coordination and breathing, right? Does, can I guarantee that the, the medicine goes to the smallest airways or just the upper airway, the bigger airways and whatnot? That's why, you know, we strongly emphasize a spacer when we dispense inhalers with, with every child. And yes, and Dr. Chavez, feel free to chime in on this too. Yeah, I just want to support what you're saying 100%. So when I was a, a fellow, that's what I did my fellowship research on is comparing spacers and nebulizers and the types of spacers. And it turns out that when you press the inhaler button and you see that spray of medicine coming out, it's coming out at over 100 miles an hour. So no matter how fast you breathe that in, there's still going to be a lot of medicine that crashes into the back of your throat, in your tongue, your cheeks. And so by using the spacer, you're slowing down that medicine and controlling it so that you could breathe in a larger quantity into the lungs where it needs to go. So it turns out that if you use a spacer, you get about 30% of the medicine from one puff going into your lungs. If you don't use a spacer, you get less than 10% of the medicine uh, going into your lungs. So definitely support Dr. Lee 100%. I, I'm going to go out on a limb here and assume that there are people listening who don't know what a spacer is. Could you guys describe what that is? So basically a spacer is a chamber, a plastic chamber. It's a one-way valve with a mouthpiece or a mask. And then there's a plastic chamber that traps the medicine in and there's an a little hole in the back where the inhaler goes in and you puff it. And so we we usually have two different types of spacers, one for children, I think six and under, it's the yellow one that we give out and I'm sure every pharmacy has different, but if it's a face mask spacer, all the child has to do is breathe normally, right? It's a one-way valve in which every normal breath, they get a little bit of the, the medication and when they exhale it, it goes out the other way because it's a one-way valve. Um, so the virtue is, is if you take 10 normal breaths, they get enough medication to go to the small airways. Now in older kids or six or eight and older, there's a mouthpiece spacer where it's a still a plastic tube, but instead of a mask, it's like a mouthpiece. It's, I liken it to like a big boba straw. I don't know if you know bubble tea, but like I tell my oh, patients, yeah. I'm like, it's like sucking up, they suck slowly, sucking air in from a big boba straw and then you have to hold it for 10 seconds. So obviously I can't, even though we use a spacer, we would less likely use a hold breath technique for a younger kid, whereas a 15 year old is like, I don't wanna use a spacer. Um, you know, that's a way to, to, to use a spacer and I use an inhaler as well. And I practice what I preach, even though I'm old, I still use a spacer, it's in my gym bag. Ah, see, well, then you never outgrew it. What? <laughs> Are there, what happens if the inhaler and the nebulizer aren't working? Are there like secondary kind of medications to give or is that kind of what we're limited to? 
so I guess when albuterol doesn't necessarily work, we use inhaled steroids. And again, it's an entire huge topic in and itself. But basically the goal is, so there's two different medicines. And I guess I just explained this again to a family that I met. Um, there's two medicines. One is albuterol, the quick acting. I call it the fire extinguisher. When your lungs are on fire, you grab the fire extinguisher, use your spacer and put the fire out, right? If your lungs are fine and healthy, it stays on the wall and expires. The inhaled steroid that we usually prescribe, there's a bunch of different ones, you know, the brand name Flovent, Sambicort, Qvar. Um, these are inhaled corticosteroids that last long. They're slow acting, they're anti-inflammatory, and they're not as quick acting as the albuterol. How I, again, refer to it as, I call it the construction company. I know brand names, but Fluticazone is Flovent is orange. I remind the parents, you know, that's the penny that the construction workers wear. It's orange, it's your daily medications. You slowly chip away and build your lungs back and make it strong. So you have to do, you know, your Flovent in the morning and at night with your spacer and it's not an immediate thing you just kind of glide up into establishing an anti-inflammatory control so if children you know need more than the albuterol usually the pediatricians can take care of it but if not they refer to us and we prescribe the the medications you guys are a fountain of information i feel like i could interview you all day long um but i do want to i do want to move over to neuromuscular lung disease dr chavez and, and and talk a little bit about that if you wouldn't mind I know it's kind of a, a wide range of issues, right? It's nervous system and muscles, and there's some that are more common than others. Could you just give us kind of a high-level overview of what you mean when we talk about neuromuscular lung disease? Uh, sure. It And you're right. It's a very broad topic, uh, but I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about it because it doesn't get talked about very much. <laughs> you know, in order to breathe, we need healthy lungs. The lungs, um, as most people uh, well, understand, you know, we breathe in oxygen, the lung tissue kind of transfer that oxygen from inside the small uh, balloons that make up the lung called alveoli into the bloodstream. And then the bloodstream is carrying with it CO2, which is the end product from having used the oxygen by our muscles and our brain and our liver and every uh, our other organs. And we breathe it out through our lungs. So we need healthy lungs but we also need healthy pump. And by pump, I mean ribs, muscles that are involved in helping the lungs expand and, and then uh, contract again. The main uh, muscle of breathing is called the diaphragm. And it is a, a thin kind of sheet-like muscle that separates our, our lungs and heart and everything else that's up in the chest uh, from the intestines and pancreas and those things that are down in the abdomen. It separates those two. When we breathe in, the diaphragm is contracting and, and it pulls down the lungs. And so there's more room for them to expand and more air can go in. When we breathe out, it's actually the diaphragm just relaxing and it, it relaxes back into its normal uh, position and the air is able to come out. So, so that Whenever we talk about neuromuscular lung diseases, that's what we're referring to is something has gone wrong with that whole pump mechanism. Is that something, and I don't know, but is that something parents should be on the lookout for? Like, how would I know that there might be an actual lung disease or situation and it's not a cold or asthma or just having trouble breathing for a moment in time? Uh, you know, some of the familiar 
neuromuscular lung diseases are present at birth. So I think a parent uh, will likely know things like birth injury uh, that has caused uh, damage to a delicate bra baby's brain and then uh, results in cerebral palsy. That is considered a, a neuromuscular lung disease. There's also uh, genetic conditions uh, that can affect the way that muscles develop. And usually a parent will notice other signs in an infant, like they're not holding their head up like they should, or they um, are only moving one side of their body more than the other, or they're delayed in, in learning how to sit up. And those things key you in that there's something going on that eventually can result in uh, the lungs being affected. But, you know, the, the first thing to figure out in those kinds of cases is, is there an underlying genetic condition here? So I guess that was going to be my next question is how do you diagnose it? Are there tests? Is it, how, how would I know as a parent? I assume I come into you and you say, hey, let's run this, this test, right? Sure. Great question. So a lot of it is dependent on the age. Let's take a baby. I'll give you a, just a very global scenario that has a lot of my patients I'll put into one. But this was a preemie baby. Say this baby was born like at 27 weeks gestation, whereas normal is 40 weeks gestation. And uh, because of all of the things they went through in the neonatal ICU, they had some brain bleeds. And their brain is now scarred and doesn't function very well. So this baby, even though they're getting, even though they're getting therapies like occupational therapy, physical therapy, uh, they're still uh, behind on their milestones. Because they were premature, they may need some oxygen still. But now you're reaching six months, eight months, and they're still not coming off oxygen when we would expect that they would. And in addition to that, we're noticing now that they don't respond as well when you talk. And, and you know, the symptoms of cerebral palsy are, are coming, becoming more obvious. It's a very gradual thing with the respiratory system, just like it is with, you know, coming to the realization that this baby's uh, uh, brain was affected. First things that we might notice in an infant is fast breathing. And then something called paradoxical breathing. So normally we we uh, move our chest and our abdomen in the same direction. When we breathe in, they both go up. When we breathe out, they both go down. Paradoxical breathing is whenever your abdomen goes up when you're breathing, but your chest goes down. So it's more of a seesaw pattern. So, so because of uh, muscles in a baby's chest being uh, not as strong as they will be eventually, that tends to happen more in, in younger children than older children or adults. So looking for fast breathing, paradoxical breathing pattern, those are, are two things that if, you know, we, we look for in our patients that come through clinic. When I was doing kind of some research on this, I, I read that there's kind of a weak cough is also often something that parents can look for as well. Is that something that they should be concerned with? Uh, yes, actually, thanks for bringing that up. A weak cough is is a sign that the diaphragm is weak. Everybody has felt hiccups. It's our diaphragm kind of contracting when it's not supposed to. Uh, but if that diaphragm is really weak, you can't get in enough air to huff it out 
as we do with a cough. And that's important because the number one or the very first mechanism that the lungs use to protect themselves from viruses, from dust, from smoke, from everything else is to cough it out. Whatever we breathe in, you know, we, we start coughing it out. And if you can't do that, uh, then there will be more debris and more things that can get down into the lungs and children with a weak cough are more prone to pneumonia and bronchitis. Well, that's no fun. I also read, and correct me if I'm wrong, that kids who have neuromuscular diseases also, it's very common for them to have sleep apnea. Is that accurate? And is that concerning? Yeah, yeah. So sleep apnea is one of the later things that we notice. Uh, although there are some infants who, who have severe enough neuromuscular weakness that they have sleep apnea, but generally it, it happens in older kids. And it, sleep apnea, uh, I'll back up a little bit and describe what that is. Uh, whenever we are asleep, we go through different stages of sleep. And in one of those stages called rapid eye movement stage or REM, REM stage, uh, all our muscles are very relaxed except our eyeballs. And I don't know why you know, <laughs> this happens, but our eyeballs move when, uh, when we're in the rapid eye movement uh, sleep stage and everything else is very relaxed or flaccid. And that is the time when obstruction can happen in the setting of obstructive sleep apnea, where the person's trying to breathe in but all the muscles are so relaxed, not enough air can get in. A lot of times you'll hear a snoring sound. Uh, however, in children who have very weak muscles, you may not even hear the snoring sound. But the danger comes when they either have a pause in their breathing, which is the natural uh, thing our body does when we're not able to breathe enough. There's a long pause and oxygen saturations going down. And whenever you have uh, what we call intermittent hypoxemia, or the oxygen saturations go down and then go up. They go down and then they go up. Over time, that, that puts a stress on the heart. And if sleep apnea goes untreated, not only is the person not getting good quality sleep right now, but in the long run, it can affect their heart. Well, you know, I, I asked Dr. Lee how to treat asthma and what are the medications and, and how does that work? What about these kind of conditions? I assume they're lifelong. I don't know. But how do you treat them and, and are they curable? Yeah. So most of these conditions are, are lifelong and it's more of symptom management rather than uh, finding a treatment or a cure. There are some very specific uh, neuromuscular diseases that have very specific treatment for them, uh, such as Duchenne's muscular dystrophy or spinal muscular atrophy. Those have very specific treatments that can help the underlying muscle weakness. But in general, if somebody has a weak diaphragm or weak muscles uh, to uh, breathe, they will also need help in clearing the secretion. So we use what we call airway clearance techniques which involve, and I, I find this a, a interesting part of our jobs as pediatric pulmonologists, is introducing kids into to these shaky vests. That's the most common one that we use. It's a, a vest device that that is connected to an air compressor. The air compressor inflates the vest that the person is wearing, 
and then it oscillates the air in and out of the vest so that it shakes. And we can start using these in toddlers on up. We don't try not to use them in babies because of shaken baby syndrome. So because they do, do shake quite a bit. There's, as a child gets older, there are mouthpiece devices that provide a back pressure that does the same thing, that oscillates the air as you're breathing out. In very young babies, we have parents that help us. And we teach parents to use a cupped hand uh, and teach them all the different sections of the lung uh, that need to be percussed or, or cupped uh, with their hand and provide the vibration to help the mucus up and out. We also have um, inhaled medications that are totally different than the asthma medicines that help to decrease the viscosity of the mucus. So it helps to thin mucus so that it's easier for it to come up and out. Uh, so we have quite a variety, but children who have neuromuscular lung disease, just like brushing their teeth twice a day, they get airway clearance once or twice a day, uh, regardless of whether they're sick or not sick. Good routine, good routine. Do you have anything to add, Dr. Lee? Yeah, um, with the, I think Dr. Chavez is right. You know, first thing, the, the vest is kind of like a massage for the kids. You know, strap it on, and some kids like it. Um, but a former mentor of mine who was a specialist in neuromuscular disease um, told me something, and it, it, it stuck with me over these years, is a little bit of air extra airway clearance certainly hurt nobody, but the lack of airway clearance certainly did. It, because it's a lifelong disease, and, you know, some families and parents get complacent, oh, he's fine. So they don't do the airway clearance because it's a tedious thing, it's time-consuming, you know, it's mundane. However, you know, we need to re recognize in these very rare neuromuscular diseases that these kids need help to clear their airway with various medicines and um, machines that we now have to our utility with these patients. So yes, do your airway clearance, folks. It's good for you. You know, you guys have talked a little bit about going into the doctor emergency rooms, having trouble breathing. The one question I feel like we really need to hit on is, how do I know as a parent when I should go to my primary care physician versus urgent care versus, say, the emergency room when it comes to my child's breathing? So I tend to teach families to look for for the signs of very severe respiratory distress in a little uh, probably up until age three or so the first thing that happens are retractions where the skin in between the ribs especially the lower ribs and then in that notch at the bottom of our neck the skin sinks in when the child is trying to breathe in um, so that is called retractions. The second thing that happens, and this is pretty subtle, is that they flare their little nostrils. So they're trying to breathe in, and the nostrils are, are flaring open. And the, those two things I teach families prompt you to pull out the albuterol and start doing the puffs or pull out the nebulizer albuterol and start doing an ab treatment and keep a very close eye on your child. If they start having more severe respiratory symptoms, which can happen in the case of RSV, even in very normal, healthy uh, babies, is that they'll have the retractions, the nasal flaring, the fast breathing, and they also grunt with every breath. So literally, okay, I'm going to do it like Dr. Lee. I'm going <laughs> to imitate it. <laughs> it sounds like this. Eh, 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 eh. So every breath has a grunt to it. 
By the time a baby is grunting, they're about to stop breathing. So that's a 911 kind of situation. And, and usually you can tell in their eyes, you know, they're, they're not focusing very well. They're uh, either overly sleepy or, or just not wanting to do anything except breathe. Call 911 in that situation. So they're, they're oh yeah, Dr. Lee, I think uh, you have something to add. Yeah, and I think those are all right. Those are the warning signs, nasal flaring, grunting, retractions. But, you know, we're in respiratory season and I kind of like even take a step back. And when I have my families that are established care with their albuterol rescue inhalers with a spacer, I tell the moms, use your spidey senses, the mommy spidey senses. If the kid is coughing ever so slightly and you know this has happened before, why don't we just give albuterol? Why do we have to wait till they're grunting before we start giving the medicine? You know, I, I, rec I liken this to like the forest fires that happen here. You know, every fire starts off as an ember. And then once it's so much easier to put out an ember or a little bonfire, then wait for it to catch on a twig on a tree. And then suddenly all the leaves start burning and the rest of the forest start burning. And oh, baby, you need that helicopter to douse water and probably get a helicopter to the children's hospital too, right? So so I it's, it's respiratory season. All the kids that are being seen by a pediatric pulmonologist should be on high alert for those symptoms. And I really trust and, and, and encourage the moms to use their intuition. When the kid looks at you funny, just get air, it. Air on the side of caution. When you're when thinking about it, breathing. it's time to <laughs> yeah. give it. When Absolutely. you're thinking about it, it's time to give it. I like that. I like that. Well, I know that we're almost out of time. So I'm just going to ask you really quickly, Dr. Chavez, you know, one area that we're very focused on at Providence is um, access to care and health equity. And this often has us thinking about the impact of those of those areas. So let me ask you, how does access affect children and respiratory illness? You know, that's a great question. And I, I appreciate you guys bringing it up. We live in a community where there's a lot of rural areas. And I think the access to care in coming into the big city, uh, one of the biggest barriers I've seen is transportation of children uh, getting in to see their, their doctor. However, when, in, when we're talking about, you know, general care of children, uh, having enough money to pay the electricity bill, you know, and keeping the house warm, paying the phone bill so that they appointments can be made, uh, having uh, food security, in other words, knowing when that your next meal is, is going to be there, uh, those are all things that affect uh, children's health in general. And in specific with respiratory diseases, having enough money for the medications, because all of these are expensive uh, medications if you don't have the, you know, the uh, appropriate insurance coverage. And also um, having the kind of the routine of doing the medications because you, I always tell kids, we're a team. I'm, my job in the team is to choose the right medicine. Mom or dad's job in the team or, or aunt or grandma or somebody is to actually get the medicine. And then the child's uh, job is to actually use it. But sometimes that breaks down because just trying to obtain the medicine, whether it's making it to the pharmacy or the cost of the medicine, those can be huge barriers to caring for children with lung disease. Dr. Stanley. I, I think 
and to add on to what Dr. Chavez says, you're right, like we live in a community in which we are the only subspecialists in eastern Washington, east of the Baker Snoqualmie Pass, all the way up to northern Idaho and western Montana, up the Canadian border. And the problem is, is we need what I kind of encourage my families is we need to come up with a contingency plan. What happens? What do we do? to avoid getting airlifted the Sacred Heart because, you know, unfortunately in more rural areas, although I would argue that Spokane's a, a, don't even qualify it as a big city, but it's the only city that in, in this area that has all the subspecialty services. And sometimes it takes three hours, five hours to get here. And if your kid's sick and has an exacerbation, you know, what do you do? And so I think part of the access would come up with a plan, you know, virtual visits, something that we can utilize to our advantage. If you're established, I don't need to listen to your lungs to know that you are flaring up, right? We can utilize what we learned in the pandemic that virtual visits are okay, right? We can prescribe steroids and, you know, life-saving medications over the phone and virtually through um electronic medical record and this is obviously not part of the access and the, the the financial and stuff this is more like all right we have a normal an everyday family with a child with fairly significant asthma but they live four hours away what do we do so i think part of the care that we try to do is not just getting the right medication not just using the spacer not just kind of like teasing out whether the child has a disease or not, but coming up with a contingency plan in case something goes wrong. And I think that's vital, in, in, especially at this neck of the woods, to come up with a good solid plan that both us and the family would be comfortable with. I can't think of a better way to end our conversation. That was absolutely brilliantly said. So I just want to thank both of you for joining us today on Talk with a Doc. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate you. <laughs> well, thank you for joining us today on Talk with a Doc. We look forward to continuing the important conversation on health and wellness with more experts from Providence in our future episodes. Make sure to listen to all our shows on Dash Radio under the Future of Health Radio Station or on your favorite podcast platform. Follow us on social media. We can be found on Twitter and Facebook at Providence and on Instagram under Providence Health Systems. To learn more about our mission programs and services, visit Providence.org. And please remember, the information provided during this program is for educational purposes only. You should always consult a healthcare provider if you have any questions regarding a medical condition or treatment. Thanks for listening. And remember, at Providence, we see the life in you.